0: You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to that Luke 9 passage. So at the end of last week's sermon, one of our members came up to me and asked a question. He said, hey, so this... Um, this amazing thing happens, right? Jairus' daughter is brought from death to life. But then there's something significant that Jesus then says to Jairus and everyone else around the people, right? In verse 56 at the uh, end of chapter 8, Jesus looks and he says, and and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So hey, I'm going to raise your daughter from the dead. But I don't want you to tell anybody. And the, the, the person asks, Why? Why does Jesus say this? And I think it's a, it's a, it's a very insightful question. It's a great question. It's, and it's something that actually leads us to our text today. So, the answer to the question, very simply put, is Jesus did not just come to perform miracles. That, that was not Jesus' purpose. His purpose was not solely sent to this earth to heal people, to cast out demons, or to raise people from the dead. Now, was that a part of his mission? Absolutely. But was it his mission entirely? No. And if, all of a sudden, before it was kind of ready, a lot of people would have known about Jesus' ability to raise people from the dead rather than just healing, because that's already, I mean, you saw, if you've been following us at all or in this this series for the last, uh, we found out this week, we've been preaching through the book of Luke for 36 weeks. So if you've been paying attention for any of the last 36 weeks, what you probably have seen at this point is Jesus does miraculous things, and when he does those things, people come around him. Now imagine that people start hearing not only is, who, do, who do miraculous things like just healing people or casting on demons, but like your loved one dies and he can bring them back from the dead. Do you think he would be able to go anywhere? I mean, just I mean, think about like when the president of our nation goes anywhere in our nation or anywhere around the world, what happens to the streets around where this person goes? They shut down. So Jesus, the one who can raise people from the dead all of a sudden g- starts raising multiple people from the dead, and everyone's like, hey, man, did you hear? Hey, man, did you hear? What happens? His ministry immediately gets slowed down. It's kind of like the situation when Mary's going, hey, Jesus, I, I need you to you know, do something at this wedding. We're out of wine. And what does he look back at his mom and say, man, it's not my time. There's, there's kind of these moments where Jesus is like, I have a plan. I know you're not seeing this plan yet, but there's a plan. And as soon as I go beyond the plan, We're no longer in the plan. So let me just stay in the plan and you just stay where you are, okay? But there's something important that we need to dive into today when we're looking at this next kind of obscure passage in Luke chapter 9. So leading up to this passage, we've seen great miracles happen. We've seen people healed. We've seen people raised from the dead. And then directly before this passage, Jesus sends out disciples And he sends them out to preach and to proclaim the gospel so that people will respond in faith. And then they return and all of a sudden Luke gets to this passage and he begins to tell us about a guy that we've not really heard too much about in a very weird three sentence place. And it's it's kind of a holding pattern if you're not really reading through the whole book of Luke and you just kind of open it up and this is your like daily devotional. You're going, what does this mean? But in the context of what Luke is writing, it is paramount. See, Luke is a doctor. He's very well educated. He is not just putting together a gospel account kind of based on, you know, happenstance or here and there. What he is creating is a very beautiful tapestry that the entire work is going to feed into each other over and over and over again. And so you're going to see a theme here, and then all of a sudden that same theme is going to pop up a couple of chapters later and then a couple of chapters later. And that's exactly what he's doing with this little paracope, this little moment in time with these three sentences with Herod. He's referring back to a heart stance. He's referring back to Jesus' parable of the soils sermon. And what he's going to get to is he's going to basically look at you and look at me through the person of Herod and ask, are you here to see the miracles of Jesus or are you here because of Jesus and Jesus alone? So, as I've told you what I'm going to tell you, now let's tell you why I'm going to tell you that. Let's dive in to these verses. So Luke chapter 9 beginning in verse 7 says now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening let's let's pause there let's let's make sure that we have enough context to understand what's happening so who is Herod well it says he's a Tetrarch well for most of us we don't know what that means so Herod is kind of like a mayor basically Tetrarch means one of four so his dad was Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas. He's kind of leading somewhere between the 4 uh, BC to 39 or to yeah, to 39 AD, I believe is that if that's right. So here is Herod, his dad has given him a fourth of the land. He's kind of the mayor And then what you have over him would be like a governor to a degree. You could think of Pontius Pilate. They have an interaction actually later with dealing with Jesus when the Jews want to turn Jesus in for him to be crucified. And and at first Pontius is like, this ain't my problem. He's from Galilee. Send him to Herod. Again, you see the hierarchy. So Pontius Pilate, Roman, Herod, not a Roman, dealing over the Jewish people. He has one-fourth of them. And so this is who Herod is. Now Herod isn't highly respected. Herod has uh, some issues. There's been a point in time where at, before this, John the Baptist actually calls him out because Herod has stolen somebody else's wife. His half-brother's wife, Philip, he steals this, this guy's wife and makes him his own. So he divorces a woman, makes this woman his. And so John the Baptist begins to... You know, preach against this because here's Herod supposed to be like this religious type leader. No, he's not a, a, a rabbi or, a, you know, a Pharisee in, in some degree, but what he is is he's a Jewish governmental leader. And when you're a Jewish governmental leader, you got to be of Yahweh. And you're not living of Yahweh if you're doing what you're doing right there in that situation, is what John is saying. And so, what you're going to see in just a second is how this plays out. So, in Luke chapter 2, I believe it is. This is where Herod is hearing about John the Baptist preaching this. but hey, dude, you you, you can't just go out and take somebody else's wife because you think she's real cute. Like, that's not a thing. That's not how this works. And so what Herod decides to do is he locks John up. And as you found out in this text, what does he then later do to John? He kills him. He beheads him. And so here is Herod, not a super highly respected guy, but definitely has power and authority He is the Tetrarch. He is the kind of mayor over Galilee in this situation. What else do we see in those first couple of lines? Now, here the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. Well, what was was happening? Jesus was healing. Jesus was preaching. Jesus was traveling around, and and all sorts of people were gathering around this person, this teacher. Now, you can imagine that the... Rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others wouldn't have liked this. This would have taken attention away from their temple stuff, all their things that were going on, all of their possible money and other things that were happening. And so they're trying to figure out what's going on with Jesus as well. And Herod hears about all this. And Herod then begins to think, okay, who is this Jesus? What does all this mean? And it says he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Let's, let's, let's stop there. So here you have Herod, who, not a really religious man, right? Really not set righteous in the, the Lord's eyes. You got Jesus who's doing a lot of the right things, obviously, and then you've got People around Herod watching Jesus, and all of a sudden, Herod hear, hears about what Jesus is doing, and accusations of who this Jesus is come about. Now, if you know anything about G- Jewish culture, this sentence isn't that weird. So if you go back to, uh, I, I believe it's Malachi chapter 4, there, there's a prophecy written about Elijah. Now, if you don't know who Elijah is, Elijah comes about, he's a prophet, First uh, Kings 17, he shows up. Elijah is... One of the major prophets of the Old Testament, um, and he he helps rid the Jewish people of the little G God Baal or Be All, however you want to call it. Technically, it's Be All, but we all say Baal. Uh, so whichever floats your boat. And so Elijah helps deliver the people from like hardcore idolatry. I mean, this little G God was in big control of the people. Like, they were doing a lot of things that they shouldn't have done, and Elijah has come in with the power and authority of God, and he helps cleanse them of their sins and their idolatry. Now, he's not perfect. He messes up a lot along the way. And eventually, Elijah rides out literally on, like, chariots of fire into heaven. Now, so some people debate, did he die? Did he die in the heavens? Did he just ascend? We're not going into all that today. But Elijah is highly respected in the Jewish community. Now then Malachi 4 comes and it says before the Messiah returns, before this great uh, kingdom return, this triumphant victory, because remember what the Jews expected when the Messiah came was a soldier, a military leader who was going to free them from the Roman captives or whoever was holding them captive during the time of belief. And what I mean by that is the Romans weren't in charge during, like, Second Temple Judaism, and I'll get in that in just a second. But if I'm being held captive by Babylon, I'm hoping that Jesus is coming, or the Messiah is coming to return to rid me of the captivity of Babylon. Does that make sense? If I'm being held captive by the Romans, I'm hoping that the Messiah comes and rids me of the captivity of Rome. So Malachi writes, hey, before the Messiah comes to free you of all of your enemies, Elijah will come. And he will help bridge some of the gaps between your fathers and your brothers. And people will be united. And so what they're expecting is they're expecting Elijah to come first. And then this military leader to come with an iron staff to free them. And here is Jesus who doesn't come like a military leader who doesn't come with this power and authority that you might expect from a military leader. No, how does Jesus come? Very humbly. Very meekly. Yes, he has authority, but not in the way that you would necessarily imagine, having read the text from a certain biased perspective. But what happens is, what you begin to see is that John is this new Elijah. So there's a thing in the scripture called biblical typology. And I'm not going to go into this too depth because it's like seminary level stuff and none of us really care. Biblical typology is basically symbolism uh, mixed with prophecy, like foreshadowing. You could look at it like that. So in the Bible, what you see oftentimes is a type, a a picture of a person or a scene or something like it in the Old Testament, and then you'll see something similar, a different type, but super similar to that type in the New Testament. And Elijah and John the Baptist are one of these types. So you have this prophet Elijah who rids the people of idolatry and points them to the Lord, and then here's John the Baptist who's helping to prepare the way for the Messiah, remember Malachi 4, and he's helping the people to rid themselves of sin. What is John preaching, if you remember? A a baptism of repentance over and over and over again. Later in Matthew chapter, I think it's 12, Jesus outlines who John is for the disciples because the disciples are confused about all of the things like, why would John be beheaded? Why is this happening over here? Why do people not understand who you are? All these different things. And where about is Elijah in all of this? I hope you're tracking with me. And John, Jesus looks back at the disciples and says this. I know you've heard about all these things in Malachi chapter four. John is Elijah. He is the one who prepared a way for me, the Messiah. And so what you see in this text, as Herod is hearing about all of the magical things, we'll call it, around Jesus, he's confused because he's killed John, who he knew was something special, but he didn't really know who he was. He just knew he ticked him off because he talked about him. So is John back from the dead? Is it, Elijah, who at this point uh, in, in, in history, th- so there's, you know that there's about 400 years written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you didn't, now you do. There's about 400 years of silence in the Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's not 400 years of silence in history, we just don't have it in the Bible. So during this same time, they're looking for Elijah. They're like the, the, the book of Maccabees and others talk about Elijah, They're waiting for his return, but they're waiting for him specifically, like probably on some sort of chariot of fire, because they were very uh, literal, if that makes sense. They weren't looking for symbolism, they weren't looking for pictures, they were looking for, oh, you said this, this is exactly what's going to happen. You know, it's blue, it's blue, it's black, it's black, it's white, it's white, right? That's kind of how they saw things. And John comes as this new Elijah, doing the same things that Elijah was called to do, and they miss it. And then Jesus comes as the Messiah, exactly how he was called to, be, to do all the things he's supposed to do, and they're missing it. And Herod is going, okay, it's not John the Baptist. It's not Herod. And it's not one of these other prophets of old. This is a, a statement also made during kind of Second Temple Judaism, that 400 years. There were some other writings out there that alluded to maybe some different prophets having a return. There's some Old Testament uh, prophecies talking about the end times, how we'll see some of these same prophets as well. And so it's kind of all mixing up. And what you're seeing from Herod is a complete and total lack of understanding of what and who God is. And the reason why all of this matters, and the reason why Luke puts this passage here, he ends with this phrase. It's a very specific phrase in Greek. It says, and he sought to see him. He sought to see him. Herod, not a religious man, not a righteous man, not a man who really cares about Yahweh, but he hears about a lot of cool stuff happening around Jesus. Why would he want to see Jesus? You know the answer. It's the same reason why you want to go to the circus. It's the same reason why you want to go to a movie theater. It's the same reason why we watch football on Saturdays and March Madness. It's for entertainment. That's all it is. Herod has no desire to know Jesus. But he has every desire to see the works around Jesus. Now, why does Luke... I think it's so important, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, to share this little three-sentence moment with us. Well, number one, I think there's some history at play here. I I I want—I think Luke is very concerned about as time goes along, how do people think about his gospel account, this narrative, this good news account of Jesus? So, what Luke does throughout this writing is he gives us historical accounts to say, "Hey, this is real," and he gives us moments in time where we can go back through other his, you know, historians and historicity and look at it and go, okay, yeah, 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 so Josephus said this, who's a famous Jewish historian, this line's up here, that war happened there, this place, all the things, right? But there's another really important reason, and it goes back to that parable of the soils. And it actually foreshadows to a writing from Paul. We often think that if we see something, we will believe, right? I mean, have you ever been in a place in your life where you you just kind of cried out to the Lord, like, man, if you'll give me a burning bush right here, I'm all in, right? Like, if you'll just do this for me, I'll be all in. You probably have. I have. If you haven't, I'm just worse than you, and that's okay, But a lot of us really have this thought, man, or maybe you've had this one. Man, if I could have only just lived to see when Jesus actually walked, like if I could have been one of those disciples, how could they have had such a lack of faith? They saw all these things. And I look at Peter, and I'm like, dude, I'd be right there with you. I would be a moron. Like I would be cutting an ear off a guy while defending the strongest being ever right like that ear is going to do anything and also like he wasn't expecting for all of this to happen anyway like in some way shape or form i'm in control of this situation that's who peter is you look at all the other disciples like they are in some way shape or form thinking yeah this is this is the messiah but they're also going i have no idea who this guy is And what are they doing every day? They are seeing Jesus. If they have such shaky faith, why would your faith be any different? If you read Scripture time and time again, what you'll see is that it doesn't say faith comes by seeing. What does it say about faith? It comes through hearing. Now, we're not going to get, like, literal and go, so does that mean somebody who, you know, can't hear, they can't have faith? No. The point is, it's like back to that parable of the soils. There are some, man when the seed gets thrown, it's not even going to take root. The bird is going to come, lift it up. If you weren't here for that, the bird represents the enemy, Satan. So as we preach the gospel, as we proclaim that humanity has fallen and we are sinners, and that Jesus came to give us a new life, he died for sinners so that we could then, in him, defeat death, just as he defeated death, and be risen with new life. Like when we believe in Jesus, that he came as the Passover lamb, this new sacrifice, the one once and for all thing we can have eternal life, when that seed is thrown, some just don't hear it. Others hear it and don't receive it. Others receive it for a moment because it sounds really great, and then it falls away. And then you have that fourth soil. And that fourth soil the ones that receive it and they function in it. And and, and so what, what Luke is highlighting here specifically is a literal example of someone who is soil number one. Man, he's really excited about seeing all the cool things that Jesus does in people's lives. But he doesn't want Jesus to mess with his life. He's not willing to give over anything from him. He just wants to look from afar. And as long as Jesus doesn't mess up his system, he's cool. Is that the Jesus that you know? The one that you're really excited about to see cool things happen? But as soon as he calls you to the uncomfortable, as soon as he asks you to do something that's, man, just a little bit outside of your normal reach, are you going, eh, I'm a little perplexed by this, just like Herod? This is is what Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is asking you to do. To look into your heart this morning, today, right now, and ask the question, who is Jesus to you? Is he all the things that we sang? I mean, our opening song was a thousand names. Magical man, mystical creature. None of those are those names, by the way, in case you were wondering. Is he Jehovah? Jehovah. Is he God? And, and maybe the one that definitely draws our attention and gaze and should under, an understanding of submission, is he Lord? You cannot believe in Jesus and have a salvific belief, meaning, meaning a belief that saves, because demons believe in Jesus, right, without bending the knee. I need you to hear that. You cannot believe in Jesus without making him Lord. And if he's Lord, you're not in charge. And so Luke puts this passage right in between a a moment of sending people out and then a moment that's coming next week where he blesses and feeds thousands. Two actions that cause each of us to ask the question, are we bending the knee? Is that what you're doing today? Or are you a little more like Herod than you thought, and you're just looking for a magical Jesus? If you're struggling to go in, I think more often than not, I find myself looking towards a magical Jesus rather than bending the knee. I, I would, number one, say to encourage you, the first step in that is just recognition that you are doing that. It's okay to recognize that you're doing it. The second step is to begin to pray that you'd submit to bend the knee. Just do it. Just, Lord, I don't know what I need to do. Help me submit to your will. I don't even know if I believe in you. Help me believe. I don't even know if I understand what all of this means. Help me to understand. And don't just say it once. I mean, if you mean it, you're going to say it a lot, right? I mean, if you think there's even a remote chance that it could be possible, if there's even a remote chance that you could spend eternity in hell, separated from God, separated from his purpose for you, wouldn't it be worth taking just a few moments of your life every single day and going, God, help me see you? What do you have to lose? A few moments of life or eternity? He says, if you knock, I will find. I will answer. You don't have to be a Herod. You can surrender and you can bend the knee today to the Lord. Not to a pastor, not to a priest, not to a church, to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that I ask that if there's anyone in this room that is struggling to submit, to bend the knee, and I pray that they, uh, they do that, that they would take a moment and they would say a simple thing like this God, strip me of my desires. And help me to see your desire. God, strip me of my desires and help me to see your desire. Lord. every single one of us can say that prayer every day. It, it, it needs to be uh, this, this rhythm that we live in. I mean, if we, if we say that we're going to love you, love people and invest in your kingdom, God, I pray that you'll convict my heart, convict our hearts to say that and pray that to you every day. God, if we find ourselves in, in middle places and we're not really sure where we are, if we're looking for the magic of Jesus or the real Jesus, God, I, I pray that you'll show up In humble fashions to show us that, man, you are amazing. And there are things that you do that seem magical. I mean, this world that we live in is magical. But it's so much more deeper than anything that we could ever call magic. Your being is holy and good. And you designed us for a purpose. God, help us to see our purpose in you. Help us to know that you love us even when we don't love you, that you care for us even when we don't care for you, and we don't care for your people, and we don't care for your world. Turn our hearts from inward focused to outward focused. Help us to be the people that you are calling us to be, to move from death to life through the power of your Spirit. Give us each the blessing that we need this morning. Send in your son's name, I pray. Amen.